so I don't know if you guys, I hope you, you're paying attention. It's actually not that easy sitting back there to, to hear here, but um, there was a question uh, in, the, in that list there about the number of people in the crypto community, businesses that had had trouble uh, getting a bank account. And if you added the yeses with the prefer not to say answer, <laughs> uh, it exceeded the noes. Um, so clearly there has been some impact. I mean, it, do, it does feel as if this is a real thing, at least according to the consensus, um, you know, contributors to that survey. So I suppose I just like to start with that maybe. Um, how real is this as, as a problem? You have a very specific story, Caitlin, so why don't I go to you, Rich, and, and just take it from there. Uh, it's a huge problem. Uh, the events of the last six months have really put the damper on, on uh, entities wanting to bank this space, but it's a legal business, and I think that every, every business in this country is entitled to access to banking rails. Uh, the regulation, I think, needs to be matured. Uh, Congress has clearly advocated what they're supposed to be doing, and the regulators are struggling to keep up. Uh, and as a result, the financial institutions, a lot of them are taking a step back uh, and trying to figure out the landscape. And that's the part of the job of a good compliance officer to help them figure that out. And you give us an international perspective here, Oliver, I presume. So what, what, is, what do you see as sort of either looking at the U.S. or the broader uh, you know, picture around the world? I mean, it has taken this crisis to shine a really bright light on just how valuable and rare that piece of infrastructure is. Our whole business exists because of that need. And I think before the crisis, it was surprisingly difficult to articulate that to, uh, especially to our more generalist investor community. Crypto VCs were all over it, but in so many conversations, not just with the investor side, with the, uh, with the commercial side as well, I really had to disclose what to them was a surprising fact, that it's really hard to move money if you are a crypto business, uh, there's regulatory, such regulatory uncertainty and mixed um, approaches across the world. There's, you know, the tier one banks risk aversity towards the market adds up to a space where if you are even a market research crypto entity, it's really difficult to get that basic unit of infrastructure, the bank account. It's, it's so ironic, really, that this um, technology that's built to actually remove all the friction. Right is so constrained by the frictions of the old system that unfortunately it still needs to hang on to. And we'll get to you in a moment about how we might try to find ways to work around that. And I'm sure, you know, Caitlin has some ideas on that as well. But Caitlin, like, maybe, you know, you felt the specific brunt of, of, of this issue, not so much about accessing a bank account, but literally getting a banking license. But, you know, things like Operation Chokepoint 2.0, is this real? I mean, is there a really a concerted effort to try to... Uh, restrict crypto or is it just a manifestation of all the uncertainty and everything else? Oh no, it's very real and your colleagues at Coindesk TV, when we got proverbially shot on January 27th uh, and I said we've got receipts for why it's real, I did share uh, yesterday because it has come out in some of our legal filings, we had an email, so what happened to us was the press started calling us days before we were voted down. And the press was telling us that they were told that we would be voted down, that the vote was a foregone conclusion. 
And so, so clearly somebody leaked that to multiple media outlets. And, and one of the press, we refused to comment, we just didn't even, didn't even engage uh, at initially. And then um, one of the reporters put it in email. So we have the receipt, so to speak. We have it in email that the applicants for bank charters at the Fed and the OCC were asked to withdraw their applications at the same time. There's the smoking gun right there. That came from somewhere. And at the time, they, in other words, someone was telling the journalists that. Um, and at the time, we didn't know whether that was true, but in, it, clearly now it was. The applications at the OCC for trust bank charters by both Ta Paxos and Protigo expired, and then ours was denied. Okay, I, I want to um, get back to you about how this gets addressed. There was the, the survey that we just had one of the opening questions is like, what should people do here? Is it litigate or is it to uh, lobby and so forth? But um, you know, the, the, the steps to take in terms of how to address this, I think is very important. But why don't we just go back down the line again? I'd like to, because you've all got very different perspectives. And so to back end into giving your introductions as well, um, you know, Rich, you've got this trust model, right? So talk, to, talk a little bit about that. It's not uh, a full bank, but you've got, Fortress Trust, explain to us what that model is about and how you think that can be constructive to the, the crypto community. Sure, I, I think it's the perfect model for the crypto community because two reasons. We can pretty much do everything that a, a bank does, but more importantly, none of the assets are held on our balance sheet. So, and also there's no single point of failure. So if we have an issue with one of our banks that we work with and we have close to a dozen and we're adding every day, and these banks are fully aware of what we're doing in this space. Uh, we have an open-minded dialogue with compliance on both sides of the fence. And uh, if there's an issue down the road and we have to exit, we just, the levers uh, switch and the, uh, our clients don't, don't even notice a difference. Right, so and it's- we can, And we can handle both, you know, you know, omnibus and segregated accounts. So okay. it's, a, it's, it's a good So you don't model. face the fractional reserve problem, right? That, that there's a run on the bank at any time. It's, exactly, yeah. exactly. But also, Caitlin, that would be the model with Custodia, of course, a different model, but you were looking to get a, a bank. You know, explain the model around the stablecoin reserve-backed banking model so that people get a sense of what that's about. Well, we're an actual bank. That's the difference. Yeah. So being an actual bank that has the no fractional reserve model cuts out a layer of intermediary. And there is bankruptcy risk in the trust model in the United States. This uh, is what the SEC required, uh, the, um, uh, required Coinbase to disclose in its 10Q in Q1 last year and caused Coinbase's stock to take a hit and there were all these overreactions on Twitter saying, oh no, Coinbase is going bankrupt. No, what the SEC required Coinbase to disclose is that there's not a special receivership regime for trust companies and money transmitters. There is a special receivership regime for banks and broker-dealers that statutorily protects the segregation of the assets in bankruptcy. That is one of the biggest differences. The other big difference is a bank can, what, can what's called receive deposits. That's what makes a bank a bank in the United States. It's, it's statutorily, it's a corporation that is statutorily authorized to receive deposits. What, is, what does that phrase mean? It means taking US dollar deposits onto its balance sheet. And uh, that's the difference between, between a bank and a non-bank. Non-banks being defined as trust companies and, and money transfers. Well, Richard, I think you're going to need to respond because you don't seem to think there is a risk there in the terms of the bankruptcy. No, the trust model in this country is, is, is time-honored. The, the bankruptcy provision in that is it's basically it's, it's a footnote, and 
know, you talk to anybody, including, you know, uh, the regulators, the trust model that's out there right now that exists today uh, is, I think, far, far superior, especially for this space. Again, no single point of failure uh, for the, in the banking space. Uh, the bankruptcy thing that she mentioned, it's, it's, a, it's a basically a non-issue. I mean, because, again, our deposits are, is not, are not held on our balance sheet, so you're not going to have that issue. All right. Now, Oliver, you're looking at things from a different perspective, again, in a way here, trying to think about if you're going to minimize the risk for any company, but in this case, crypto companies, that there's exposure yeah. in a sort of a more distributed way. Explain that model. Um, I think before I get into how our model mitigates that risk, I just want to maybe shed a light on the nuance of our structure um, in the UK European space and how it compares to a US trust um, and, and a full bank. Um, and I think each model has its trade-offs. I think we've seen now the risk of having a kind of a mono-depository uh, Custodia Bank mitigates the risk by being full reserve. Um, the, the parallels between an authorized payments institution model uh, such as BCB groups under the FCA's supervision and the trust model. The parallels are that, like the trust model, there is no single point of failure. We rely on a network of depository partners. In the UK regulatory uh, space, an API, an authorized payment institution, is bankruptcy remote. So all funds, uh, if we go under, nobody, we have no claim to funds on account. It is one-to-one -one, uh, for those end clients. In our, in our case, on the GBP side, it happens to be a full reserve model. Um, for non-GBP currencies, um, it is more standard uh, kind of fractional reserve. But um, I think the key point there is, you know, whether you're you know, a single depository or uh, a multi-depository model, each has its own trade-offs. In, in our case, as an API, the trade-off is you cannot keep funds on term deposit. Funds must uh, churn within a certain period. So they cannot accumulate uh, you know, a meaningful level. So we're not a net interest margin model, we're a transactional model. So they manage the maturity mismatch, yes. or they make sure that it's very, very narrow. Oh, it's extremely narrow. It is designed for zero. Um, it's designed to be you know, in and out. But um, I think the important point for us here and why our model has been a little more resilient uh, in the recent volatility is that it's, you know, we are purpose-built as a payments institution, solving a problem that the crypto market needs most, which is payments. Um, and what we've seen is credit institutions uh, applied to the payments model, and that uh, tension between uh, a kind of a borrow-lend model and a move-money model has fallen short when uh, these extreme interest rate um, events have occurred and when extreme regulatory scrutiny and let's call it hostility, and it has been at play. Okay. Caitlin, going back to the United States, mm -hmm. uh, what is the next step for Custodia then? How do you, didn't get the, the good news you were looking for in terms of the most recent application? Do you refile or where does this go? Well, we already had a lawsuit in process, as you know, uh, and I won't comment on that other than to say the statutory question at issue is the Monetary Control Act of 1980 which requires the Federal Reserve to provide services on a non-discriminatory basis to all eligible depository institutions. In other words, you have to be a depository institution in the United States to be able to, to move dollars at the Fed. And, uh, and, and the 
statutory language uses the word shall. So the question becomes, is the Federal Reserve obligated to provide accounts to eligible depository institutions, as the statute plainly says, or uh, they maintain that they have discretion. That's at issue. And so it really, it, it's a broader issue, interestingly, because it, it deals more with, the, with, what, with what's called the dual banking system. A lot of non-Americans, and frankly, a lot of Americans, are bewildered by how the system is so crazy in the United States. Seemingly, it's not actually. When President Lincoln set up what's called the dual banking system in 1863 in the United States, the National Bank Act was passed, which says, all right, states in, from the US's inception up until then always chartered banks. And then he created the National Bank Chartering Authority, the OCC. And the deal that was cut is that all the states plus the National Bank Chartering Authority, the OCC, are the only entities that charter banks. And then when the FDIC was created in 1933 and the Fed was created in 1913, those were deemed utilities. And every bank got access to each of those utilities by law. What has happened in the last, since Operation Choke Point started, is the FDIC started pushing back and saying, no, we get to pick and choose which industries get to be banked. And then the Fed started denying validly chartered depository institutions access to Fed accounts. Again, these are utilities with, and those agencies do not have chartering authority. And so the question is very much, do these agencies that are utilities have the authority to overrule the chartering decisions of the chartering agencies? And it very much is a state versus federal You're question. chartered in Wyoming, right? That's the... We're chartered in Wyoming, right, yes. Right. But there, it's interesting, there are five U.S. states that have uninsured bank charters. So why is it uninsured? The FDIC, multiple of us have, have tried to get FDIC insurance. There have been multiple companies from this industry that applied for FDIC insurance, and the FDIC won't insure. We, are, we knew that, okay? So the, the point is, okay, well, there are uninsured bank charters, so let's just go with an uninsured bank charter. There are, there are five states in the United States that have uninsured bank charters. Uh, and, and frankly, that's a very interesting option for the states that have a lot of industries that got caught up in Operation Choke Point 1.0, of which Wyoming is one. One of the reasons why Wyoming was interested in that special purpose depository institution charter, yes, it's designed for crypto, but it's more extensible than that. It, it can be used more broadly. One of the reasons why Wyoming was so interested is because the firearms industry got debanked, that. and that's one of the industries in Wyoming, and there were legislators, there was one who owned a firearms company that got debanked, and when the entrepreneurs came in and testified to losing their bank accounts, he understood exactly what they were up against. And so he wasn't interested in crypto per se, he was interested in keeping the option for the state to have uninsured banks that, that could bank at the Fed and make sure that, the, that their core industries did not get debanked by the political types in Washington. Now, I, I do want to make sure you guys get some say here, but this is just such a hot button issue, I need to go a little bit further with this, right? So, you know, this Operation Choke Point, right? I don't know how many of you are aware of this. There was a, this is what Caitlin's referring to is Operation Choke Point 1.0. Um, and it was this, you know, basically, I suppose, subtle suggestions, and it was an unofficial policy, more or less, uh, guidance, if you like, to banks that they uh, could not bank certain industries, and firearms was one, I think pornography might have been another. There were 30. 
There were 30, okay. So there's a lot of them where firearms, obviously, these are very contentious things. And, but I think the constitutional argument was, you know, the, you, you can't be discretionary around otherwise legitimate industries, right? Which crypto is, right? No one's saying that crypto itself is illegal. Um, so, so where does this go, Caitlin? I mean, again, I don't want to, your own lawsuit is one thing, but just more broadly, is this a constitutional issue? Is this something that should be taken to the, to the Supreme Court? I mean, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny because the attorney who wrote the white paper for Cooper and Kirk that got a lot of attention a few weeks ago, he was my law school classmate. And uh, I had lost touch with him. I had no idea he was working on Operation Choke Point 1.0 when yeah. we, we reconnected. Uh, and and his, what he succeeded in doing in spite of the fact that the banking agencies back then were denying that such a effort existed, once he got into discovery in his litigation on, on behalf of the payday lenders, what he learned was that the agencies absolutely were lying. He found all kinds of smoking gun evidence in discovery, and the FDIC settled his lawsuit. Okay, so could be some fun and games. Uh, we, we journalists like this sort of stuff because it's uh, something to write about. Can I just um, build on that? Yeah. I, I think um, Choke Point is a thing, but I think Choke Point is, it is the SEC's chemotherapy for, um, SEC, for, a, gig for a $14 billion mm -hmm. Ponzi cancer and healthy, legitimate organs like Custodia Bank are getting hit. That's a temporary condition because once that cancer is washed out, those health organs will find their place in this ecosystem again. It, is, it was a tragedy to see what happened uh, in this case, a, a good actor getting the short end of the stick of a, of a massive crime that the SEC were right to attempt to address. Right. It, it does feel as if the various agencies are, I don't know about it, in lockstep, but like doing each other's bidding a little bit right now because of the egg on the face and the concerns about that, that big blow up. We had a whole morning, those of you who are here, addressing the FTX fallout, the entire first session to that because it has had such an influence on everything else. For sure. Okay, let's shift gears a bit here. I, I, what can crypto companies do then, right? What are their options? Uh, it is a difficult environment to get banking services, but, you know, Caitlin, I'll come to you again in a minute, but I mean, just to give you an example, I mean, ultimately, if you were to be successful, there would be a very different way of thinking about what payments themselves are. For sure. Stable coins, and we do have stable coin, other non-bank stable coins and so forth, right? But you've each got different models. So what do you, what, Rich, first of all, what's, what's your advice to, to crypto companies who are coming, knocking on the door for you guys? Are you turning them away? Are you like operation choke pointing them or not? Absolutely not. I mean, when you look at the, the Fortress model, we're a technology company at heart. The trust bank, which I'm part of, is, is one of the verticals. So when you, the ability to provide a robust API-driven onboarding banking experience to the crypto industry is what's first and foremost. Now, we do a lot of other banking or a lot of other services in, in the, under the trust model. The, the crypto piece has gotten a lot of publicity in recent days because we took on the Signature Bank team. But it's the best advice I can give to a, a, a crypto company is, is get your compliance houses in order. And I work with my counterparts in the, in the industry daily, helping them out, filling in the gaps, trying to get them up to speed. And then the level of communication uh, is, is necessary. Uh, I'll give you a great example. We have a, a small entity that's, you know, what I refer to as a sapling, and they're, they're just starting out. 
Uh, you know, we, we brought them on, there was some issues, they went back to the drawing board, and, and now they're back on, online again. Because, again, it was the back and forth communication. That's what's lacking in, in the space right now. You know, too often, you know, people are just not talking to each other. I, I have every one of my uh, counterparts at the bank's cell phone. If there's an issue, that, you know, we work it out, and then we'll memorialize it in writing. This business needs to be banked. I mean, you're not, you're not putting the, uh, the genie back in the bottle again. And the fact that uh, you, you have, you know, political wins, you know, that's, that, that stuff will be sorted out in due time. My main goal is to, is to get these guys onboarded, get them, and let them run at 150 miles an hour in a regulatory-compliant environment. Okay, I mean, it just goes without saying, right? The industry needs to be banked. But it's interesting how the very word bank um, is in itself laden with problems because... The general, we generally think of a bank as a, as, you know, a reserve, a partial reserve bank, a fractional reserve bank. And so that at the same time, most people think about their deposits as being something that they have access to. They don't recognize it as being you know, a, a liability for the bank that may not actually be honored. Uh, and yet, you know, First Republic uh, is, is reminding us of this fact. And it's really a problem that's got nothing to do with crypto, um, but it's feeding through into all of these concerns. And it gets this conversation going about what does it mean to be banked? Because ultimately what a crypto company needs is, is, to, is to pay people, right? It, it's a payment solution. And yes, there's, there's, the, there's the trust model. Uh, there, is a, there is various stable coin versions. One that may be, one day be backed by the Fed is, is, is another one. But then, you know, you're talking as well here, Oliver, about diffusing risk. Um, and so that there's a, you've got a different way of looking at that okay. fractional reserve problem, right? I will build on that, but I just want to rewind a little um, to how we should be thinking about building in this, in this market environment. Going back to the question, you know, how are financial institutions and banks viewing the crypto industry right now, and should we be uh, bringing new business on, or should we be kind of hitting the brakes? And um, I'll shortcut this bit by saying what he said. Um, but I think from what we've needed to take a close look at and what we'd, I, I would personally really like to point out is that your strategic, your own strategy as a crypto company and us as a financial institution supporting the crypto industry um, has to be seasonally adjusted to uh, the seasonality of macro, of crypto and of macro markets, crypto markets and the current uh, regulatory um, uncertainty. And what I mean specifically by that is Whereas in a bull market with lots of tailwinds and optimism, we're in opportunistic mode. We're looking at um, the low-hanging fruits and grabbing, uh, you know, creating, I guess, more short or medium-term value. In this bear market in which we've got the headwinds that I've mentioned, you know, the macro markets which have got soaring rates, the crypto markets which have got volatility and general uncertainty and the regulatory uncertainty as well, we need to recalibrate from short, medium-term value build um, to long-term uh, uh, doubling down on the things that work today. It is the, the way to get through this as a crypto builder and as a crypto financial institution is to be reassuringly boring. It is to double down on the simple things and build value that's going to last because there is no real upside in the short-term opportunism right now. We have to have a long-term view because this winter, I mean, it could be another three months, could be another three years. And it takes a special kind of resilience that I've seen in, in each of my uh, panelists here and in so many founders and businesses in this crypto space. 
that kind of resilience is what it's, what's going to get us through. So focus on the long-term build, and um, I guess treat short-term opportunism as noise. Okay, and that long, you know, being that focus builder, long-term, delivering something of real value, that's going to get, uh, it's going to help you get through the door and get, a, get, a, get access to banking. And that's how we diffuse risk from a strategic point of view. But to your question, which was a bit more literal, how do we diffuse risk as in depository risk, regulatory risk? I guess the trust model and the payments institution model is built specifically to, to have a multi-depository distribution of risk so that if any single depository goes down or is in trouble, it rebalances. And from a regulatory point of view, if you have the supervision of multiple regulators, I guess as we do as a luxury of being in my time zone, UK, Europe, Switzerland, you know, we have the UK's FCA, France's ACPR, Germany's BaFin, Switzerland's FINMA. And if any one of those kind of turns risk averse to crypto, there is, um, you know, a way to kind of uh, rebalance to, to other regimes. It's interesting, the model you describe is this no single point of failure. Like, or mm. it's, the, it, it's a decentralized structure without being a blockchain. It's, a, mm. it's one that just, it sounds as if it's there with an adjustment structure. We must think in these terms. Okay. Interesting. Um, Caitlin, so, so one of the things I, I, I don't know, looking at this crisis, right, with SVP, Signature, now First Republic, it is one of those times when, you know, the otherwise blasé general public uh, suddenly realizes that this thing that they thought of as, as almost like a vault for their money isn't a vault for their Correct. money. Correct. <laughs> um, it, it has these, uh, you know, bankruptcy liability risks behind it. Um, do you think... I don't know whether it's enough yet because we've had a number of banking crises in this country over the years. Um, is this the sort of thing that might, in maybe a different political environment, uh, shift discussion away from the money, thinking about things like fully reserved banks and stable coins and, and, and a different way of thinking about what payments are? It, it, times like this, it always seems to me nuts <laughs> that we have this really, really important infrastructure, the way that we pay each other to be tied to this risky structure. Yeah, absolutely, that's correct. And uh, Matt Levine had a really interesting write-up about it last week, where he essentially said, look, the markets are forcing a move in traditional banking towards a much higher reserve model. The challenge is that small banks in the United States, on average, have six cents of cash. And large banks, everyone thinks the GSIBs are all fine, it's 10 cents. This is data that you can find on the Federal Reserve's own website. Okay, so um, one of the stress tests that the, that the bank regulators do with traditional banks is assume that 35% of their demand deposits are withdrawn in a short period of time. Ooh. Okay, well, if you've got six cents of cash, 35% of your demand deposits going away, you're done, right? And so the backup liquidity um, can be there, right? But that's causing a political hot potato as well. And so that one of the other challenges, of course, is that not only is there not enough cash, not enough reserves on the banks, um, uh, uh, the, the small and large banks in this country, but they're upside down on the, the mark-to-market, on the interest rate risk and on the loan portfolios before we even head into a recession, right? So there is a huge issue with the banking industry in this country, uh, and it is rather ironic that the Federal Reserve talked about how a bank that was going to be holding 108 cents of cash for every dollar of deposits was a run risk when the average bank holds six cents of cash. Well, the, 
obviously we're not here to like encourage actions and so forth, but you know, that, those sorts of numbers are the things that do lead into banking crisis. And we did Correct. see, of course, we've seen a big uh, rebalancing. A lot of those community banks, smaller banks, have struggled. And the irony, of course, is that the money has gone into the biggest banks, which has got, brought us right. all the way back to 2008 problem of too big to fail banks being even bigger. The problem of which is not just uh, the you know insecurity of that, but literally the political domination of those banks, right? I mean, you have that much power. So, I mean, I mean, do we see something similar in Europe as well? I mean, we saw Credit Suisse go on. I mean, that, right. are we seeing some sort of consolidation there as well? We've got 12 seconds, I'm afraid, Oliver, so... In nine seconds. Um, <laughs> um, that level of, uh, you know, five cents, six cents to eight cents is almost illegal. The rate cap requirements are a lot higher. Yeah, no, I've nothing more to add because there's zero okay. seconds. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, we'll leave it at that. Thank you very much. A round of applause for this panel.